This is the Reading Instruction Show. I am Andy Johnson, and I'd say I have a special guest today, but all my guests are special. So, special guest, who are you? I'm Dr. Stephen Reiter. I'm a professor emeritus from Minnesota State University, Mankato. And what has been your experience as a teacher? Well, I first started teaching way back in 1970. I taught in a small town called Larrabee. Uh, it was in Iowa, population 119, and I taught fourth grade. And then the next year, I taught fifth grade. So I had the same students uh, two years in a row. And we were in a rural area. So in one sense, um, I was almost pre-STEM. Our outside uh, playground, adjacent woods and farms. So we did a lot of science stuff uh, with the students. So it sounds almost idyllic. That two-year uh, relationship, how did that affect your teaching? Well, one, um, I really got to know the students. I think today they probably call that looping. But I remember when we came back that second year, within a half a day, we were up and running. It was like coming back from um, a winter break. I knew the students, the students knew me. And so in one sense, um, we were able to get past the getting to know you stage because we already knew each other. And I was able to build on things um, and methods that I did the first year of teaching. Uh, uh, for example, cooperative learning. When I was an undergraduate, my main professor, Hayes McGraw, talked, uh, had several lectures on cooperative grouping. And this was way before Roger Johnson and David Johnson did their things on cooperative grouping. And it worked. I loved it. My students worked together. Uh, the demeanor of the classroom became far more civil. We came up with some extraordinary projects. It was, uh, so that's, I look at that one particular thing as something that really impacted uh, the rest of my teaching career. You know, so many of these good ideas and strategies came from these small schools and they became institutionalized and it's like they discovered something new. Right. I remember taking a class on cooperative grouping from Roger Johnson and I really enjoyed the class. And one of the reasons I enjoyed it is that it confirmed that everything I did with my students, I was on the right track. You know, how I would group students, how I would give them projects to work on, um, mixing the groups up. Sometimes they're homogenized and other times they're heterogeneous groupings and stuff uh, in pairs, in fours. And what all you know, the research that Roger and David found from youth cooperative grouping, I could, in my own mind, all this is true because I witnessed it with my students. What has been your experience as a teacher educator? Well, that's an interesting one. You know, I started in teacher education in 1972, and I taught, I've taught over the years in three different types of institutions in the state of Minnesota, private college, the University of Minnesota system, and then the state university system. And when I was looking over some of my notes in preparation for this podcast, one of the things that 
came to my mind, and there may be huge disagreements on this, but for the most part, teacher teacher preparation hasn't changed dramatically. We're basically doing the same things that we did in 1972 now that we did in 1972 we have core methods courses we you know that are separated out we have reading methods we have math methods and so on social studies methods we have students do a field experience and we have students do student teaching and so in one sense all that has changed now some things have been tweaked you know we we may have increased you know the number of, of days spent in school as part of the field experience you know we required students to take a basic skills test uh, before they can get into teacher preparation, we've raised the GPA for entrance requirements, and some of these things I'm going to come back to. Um, student teaching is you know, pretty much the same, probably about 10 weeks. So, um, you know, other than little tweaks here and there, it's basically the same. You take, you know, you, you're admitted, you take an intro to ed course, some educational psychology courses, methods courses, student teach, and you graduate. And if you pass the test, you get your Minnesota teaching license. And they keep moving you along the educational conveyor belt. Yeah. Well, um, and I'm going to do a spinoff on this. What's what's interesting with these things, um, you know, I think for the most part, you know, in the 70s and probably I'm sure in the 50s and 60s, teacher education, for the most part, its sole purpose, it was a moneymaker, especially for private colleges and the state university system. Uh, there was probably no limit on enrollment, uh, especially in the state university system. And students... If they had a 2.0, they could get into the program. Um, people went out and student taught. Sometimes they were supervised and sometimes they weren't. Uh, they could be in the classroom for 10 weeks and maybe one person from the university would come out and watch them and that would pretty much be it. Um, then um, there's a report that came out in about 1978-79 by Timothy Weaver just and it was sort of a, a spin-off of the nation at risk but it really blasted people going into teacher education kind of like what the nation at risk report did and what came out of that was you know increase in entrance requirements instead of a 2.0 some institutions went to a 2.5 um, they started to limit enrollment uh, states were required to have students pre-service students complete and pass a basic skills test in math reading and, and writing so and what people don't realize they think that raised the standard you know, for people coming in to teach for education, but it was also in one sense of form, in my mind, of institutional racism. You know, it kept some of the most creative uh, people out of teacher education, and it kept underrepresented populations out of teacher education. And we still have that problem today. We, we think we have standards. We try to address those issues, but we never really do anything about it. And so as a result, um, some studies are buried. There hasn't been a study, and this is part of the problem with all these entrance requirements, especially the basic skills test, that um, there's hasn't been uh, research that has confirmed that passing that basic skills test creates better teachers um, 
and it doesn't. But what it does do, and what they do know, is it keeps qualified people out of the classroom, and and which is to the detriment of many of the students that we have in, in our, especially in our urban pop, you know, urban schools. Tell us about, I know you've uh, evaluated programs, teacher preparation programs for accreditation. Tell us about that experience. Well, that's an, in my mind, that's been an, an eye-opening experience and, and an enjoyable experience. Um, you know, to sort of preface that and, excuse me, <clears throat> to preface that, you know, the Board of Teaching, um, which is now called PELSBY, the Professional Educator Licensure uh, or Licensing and Standards Board, <clears throat> excuse me again, <clears throat> um, they have, you know, a set of standards that teacher training programs must adhere to. And a lot of people complain about PELSBY and the requirements they have out there. In my mind, they brought civility to teacher education. Prior to the Board of Teaching, which was Pelsby's predecessor, colleges ran amok. They, or teacher training programs, ran amok. They, some programs required, you know, 13 credits plus student teaching, had no entrance requirements. Um, others required, you know, 70, 80 credits. And when enrollments were going down in the 70s and colleges were trying to save uh, faculty members, you know, they started requiring courses um, that students didn't need. There is a, a, one of the state colleges or state universities uh, required a course for elementary education majors in woodworking. And, um, and I had some of those students in my graduate classes and they said that nobody could explain to them why an elementary education major needed a class in woodworking. When that professor retired, they dropped that requirement. Or other institutions, they would have educational psychology, they would have learning development, and one other sort of ed foundation course, um, three courses, four credits apiece. Um, for students, and they were, you know, highly repetitious. So, um, in the first few years of the Board of Teaching, there were a lot of battles going on between them and, and uh, teacher preparation programs. They required a maximum, which essentially became a minimum, number of credits that, that programs could require students to take. So it forced institutions to reevaluate their program and make it more streamlined to, as to not to waste students' time. So getting back to your question about my experience with those, for the most part, um, they've been very positive. They're there are a lot of institutions out there that, given the current guidelines for teacher preparation, go um, not only meet them, but go above and beyond. And then on the flip side, there are other institutions that don't. Um, they require, you know, even below the minimum, they do not have entrance requirements. They do require the the basic skills tests have very little in methodology or or uh, organized uh, field experiences and so on. So it's run the gamut. But for the most part, I would I would say the programs um, that we have in the state are are pretty good. Now, the problem that I see is that when institutions don't meet some of those standards, 
they still end up being accredited. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, that's, that's practice I'm not very happy with. There's one criticism I have of um, probably Pelsby and so on, that when some of these institutions don't meet standards, they, you know, they should suspend their license. And, to, and having said that, um, they do. They, they meet a huge amount of, of uh, kickback from the institution and sometimes from state legislators. But um, by and, you know, for the most part, you know, the accreditation process is getting more strict. People need to document what they're doing and, and assess what they're doing. What's something that could be done differently in teacher preparation, do you think? Well, um, I thought about that, and that this is going to be sort of an odd approach, but I would start at the end and work back. Um, I think of some of the things we do in our, in our programs that are really good for students, and then we place them out in student teaching, and um, you know, in classrooms, some of the classroom teachers are very good, and, and some aren't. And what happens there is that the number one rule for selecting a classroom teacher uh, to place a student teacher with for those 10 weeks or 12 weeks or whatever is their willingness to say yes. So um, there really isn't much uh, being done to adequately, adequately assess classroom teachers to see if they should have a student teacher placed with them. And you know, what I'm going to say is probably going to offend a lot of people, but you think of our schools and how the achievement gap um, is rampant in this state, and yet we tend to place our student teachers in some of those very schools where there's a huge um, achievement gap. And not all of the achievement gap is related to how the teacher teaches. Uh, it can be the environment in which they're in. But we could be more careful in who we select. You know, if we have people in the classrooms who aren't making it, why would we want to put a student teacher with them? And we've had building principals who would want student teachers placed with their poor teachers, thinking that the student teacher will make their classroom teacher a better teacher, when in fact uh, it has the opposite effect. It makes a highly competent pre-service teacher less competent. So I would start with the schools where we place our student teachers um, and just make that a more uh, laborious process, which is a bad word, but more discriminating in how we select classroom teachers. So that's one, you know, that's one part that I think we, you know, that we should change. Um, I think there was some initial research that was started you know, maybe about 10 years ago now, that sort of fell by the wayside. It started with, you know, the new Bush grant. And part of that was is to correlate, you know, these, you know, students who aren't doing well in school, let's look at their teachers and where are they being prepared? And is there a common theme here? Teachers who come out of um, a certain type of teacher training program, are those teachers working better with their students than 
uh, teachers in a comparable grade coming from another institution. Uh, that became too political. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's been sort of dropped by the wayside. Uh, they had variables factored into you know that whole process, but um, you know as the Bush grant went along, you know, that particular aspect of it was was you know quietly dropped. So those would be the two areas. We I think you know specific you know institutions can control who they place student teachers with, and I think maybe the state as a whole or uh, school districts as a whole could evaluate their teachers and and determine okay teachers who are prepared at institution a perform their students seem to perform far better than uh, students that are in classrooms and teachers from institution b wow you know what i'm taking from this interview is uh that you prepared for it. Wow. All right, Dr. Steven Reuter, thank you very much. Okay, thank you.